We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage today. Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 21 to 39. 21 to 39, but to start, we'll just be reading the first seven verses together. So verses 21 to 28. Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy word. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Amen. Amen. Sociologist uh, Max Weber um, famously distinguishes between three types of authority in society. Okay, three types of authority in society. They are charismatic, traditional, and the set, third one's kind of tricky, rational legal authority. Now, um, I know for a lot of us, we, we don't think that uh, authority is something that we're we're fond of, especially if you're older and you're a control or power idol. You're like, I'm live my own life. I'm going to make my own decisions. But the reality is we all experience and live under different expressions of authority. Rational legal authority, let me break these things down. Rational legal authority occurs when power is legitimized by legally enacting rules and regulations such as governments. Okay? So every four years in our culture, uh, in our country, there is a presidential election, right? And most elections split the country right in half, right? Most of it is either Republican or Democratic. And if you look at the percentages, it is like 51-49. You know, it's like the slimmest of margins. And we truly see this country is either voting red or blue. Now, what's astonishing is that after the elections... Even though half the people voted in one direction and the other half another direction, it doesn't result in a civil war or a military coup. Why? How? Because in our country, we've developed a system of rational legal authority. So America has a peaceful transfer of power from president to president, right? Whether it's from a Democratic president to a Republican or a Republican to a Democrat, there's a peaceful transfer of power. And so... Whoever becomes elected becomes the president of the entire country, not just his faction, right? Not just his party. All the people who voted against him become under his authority, under his power, even if the millennials hashtag not my president, right? The reality is he is all of our president. And that's just a fact. That's rational legal authority that gets transferred. Next, traditional authority. What is this? It is power legitimized by respect for long-established cultural patterns. Okay? So it's a transfer of power and authority, but more based on tradition and culture. When power passes from one generation to another, then it is known as traditional authority. Perfect example, the kings and queens of England. How do you become a king or a queen of England? You don't just kind of sign up for it. 
You don't audition for it. You don't work for it. You are born into it. It's who your parents are. It's your bloodline that allows you to be in line to be a king, a queen, a duchess, a duke, whatever it might be. Also, family is a good example as well of a traditional authority. Okay? If you are a parent, whether you are a good parent or not, a rich parent or a poor parent, healthy parent or a poor parent, you have authority by nature, by birth over your kids, by blood, you have authority over them. So that's traditional authority. Thirdly, charismatic authority. Now, this is power legitimized by extraordinary personal abilities that inspire devotion and obedience. Positive examples of this are like Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Okay? They weren't born into leadership. They weren't voted into leadership, but by their gifts, by their strength, by their charisma, by their vision, by their leadership, multitudes of people joined their cause and they became followers. Negative examples are Hitler and Stalin. Charismatic authority misused and abused, gone bad. Now, all of these leaders, they were literally able to win their authority from people by virtue of their extraordinary leadership and abilities. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of this charismatic authority. His disciples left everything to follow him. And he proved himself to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of Israel in every aspect of his life. His nature, his words, his acts, his deeds, all of that lined up so greatly that his disciples not only followed him for three years during their ministry together, that many of his disciples died bearing the name of Jesus as martyrs for the faith. That is leadership. That is authority. That's charismatic authority. And here in our passage today, we are going to see four things that come from the text. The title of today's sermon is True Authority. And we're, as we study the authority of Jesus, we're going to see actually four things. I know I normally do three, so four I'm a little worried about, but I'm going to bang through these and get us out of here in good time. So four things. First, we're going to see that Jesus demonstrates true religious authority. Second, he demonstrates true spiritual authority. Thirdly, he demonstrates true physical authority. And lastly, we're going to see Jesus on mission, authority on mission. So we're going to see the religious authority of Jesus, the spiritual authority of Jesus, physical authority of Jesus, and then his authority on mission. Now, I found that everyone naturally seeks out some kind of charismatic gift or uh, leadership-based authority. Okay? Even the proudest of people Okay? Even if you're like all about like, I'm do-it-yourself and, and I'll figure out my own life, I'll figure out my own finances, I'll figure out my own relationships, my own health, and all of that stuff, you might be a totally independent person. Okay? But when it comes to an area where you are not an expert, we're an area where you are unfamiliar, in those moments, you're looking for an expert. You're looking for help. You're looking for guidance. This is why Yelp is so popular in our culture. I am amazed because now with smartphones and Yelp, you can go to any major city in America and find good restaurants and good coffee shops. That used to not be the case. People would always ask me, Pastor Michael, you're from Georgia. I'm visiting there on a business trip. Where should I eat? Here's the fact. I haven't lived there for 18 years, right? That's like someone saying, hey, where should I go to Koreatown? But it was like 18 years ago. Like everything's closed. They have all like new restaurants, right? But we're always looking for new authorities. We're looking for not just public opinion, but we're looking for the best people, the experts, 
the best doctors, the best repairmen, the best caregivers. Uh, how did I find my veterinarian for my dog? Yelp, right? I was looking for the best vet to take care of my dog. I recently got LASIK eye surgery, right? Uh, very cool. I was like a little scared. I was blind for like three seconds. Um, and now when I was looking for LASIK, I didn't just look for the cheapest eye surgeon. I wasn't looking for like a two-for-one coupon. Um, that would have been scary. I did two things. I asked my friends who got LASIK, and then I looked on Yelp just to see what their reviews are. Is that ophthalmologist legit? Good reviews, right? Positive experiences. I wanted an expert to do surgery on my eyes, not just the cheapest bargain. Now, when it comes to knowing and following God, when it comes to setting your life in sync with Jesus and his word, when it comes to the eternal security of your soul and the souls of of your spouse and your children, your families, your loved ones, who of us here are authorities? Who here is an expert? Who here can guide the way and get us all into heaven, no doubts? You see, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to salvation and knowing God, we are all looking for someone with true authority to show us the way. In our passage today, Mark tells us that Jesus went with his disciples into a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he was teaching. Now, um, for us, we're very familiar with synagogues, especially if you went to UCLA on the west side, synagogues everywhere. Um, but the synagogues right, were not originally something that was practiced in Old Testament Israel. You see, God gave Israel instructions on how and where to worship, so he told them to build the tabernacle. He then told them, he guided them through how to build the temple. But something happened in Israel. The northern kingdom fell, and the southern kingdom fell, and suddenly they lost their land. Suddenly, Israel didn't have Jerusalem as its capital city, and and Israel didn't have the temple to go and worship. They were living in Assyria. They were living in Babylon, and they were foreigners, and they were living as slaves. So they needed to think of something, some way to preserve the word of God, to pass on the truths of God from generation to generation, teach their kids the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So what did they do? They came up with the synagogue, right? Local regional, smaller pockets of places for Israel to come. And it wasn't for worship and sacrifices. It was actually for teaching and interpreting and passing on the word of God. This is where Jesus went. He's in uh, Capernaum, and he goes and he enters into a synagogue. And in these synagogues, the scribes ruled the day. The scribes were the ones who were considered experts on the law. They were the equivalent of our seminary professors today. But there was a problem with the way scribes were leading things and teaching. You see, the scribes were focusing on and relying on their own interpretation of the law rather than teaching the law itself. The scribes had become very tribal about this teacher and this rabbi's interpretation. Who do you roll with? Who do like what 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 synagogue does this um uh does this person's interpretations and doctrines uh, reign in? That was going on with the scribes. It's one thing for the scribes to talk about God's word. They were all hearing it. They're all hearing different messages. It's another thing for the scribes to faithfully proclaim God's word. That's something we do too much in the church, brothers and sisters. We talk about God's word. We talk about living in the kingdom 
rather than simply proclaiming and calling one another to live as followers of Jesus Christ. We're not proclaiming the truth of God. We just kind of talk Christianese in this roundabout bubble. That's what the scribes were doing, and Jesus' teaching changed everything. Jesus' teaching absolutely astonished and amazed the people, okay? It's not like what I'm doing right now. I don't feel like there's anything astonishing and amazing about this sermon. But when Jesus stepped forward in the synagogue, he spoke the truth in a way that was completely unique and different. Mark doesn't tell us the content of the sermon. What Mark wants us to know is the cause and effect. The cause and effect. Jesus taught, and they were astonished. Why? Because they'd never heard anyone like that before. That's why Jesus says, you have heard it was said. If you go back and you read in Matthew, starting in chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the oral tradition and the things the scribes and the Pharisees were talking about. He says, you guys have heard it was said this. But Jesus says, but I say unto you. He's reversing. He's usurping. He's overriding what the scribes are teaching. How can he do this? How can he do this? Because he has an authority that no scribe, no Pharisee had ever had before. You see, these scribes had become quarrelsome. They were tribal. They were legalistic. They were adding to the law with their own commands and interpretation. But as someone, but someone has come in Jesus Christ, someone came to their synagogue and he taught with greater power, truth, and weight. You see, Jesus' authority was so compelling that he went up to Peter he went up to his, aunt, his brother Andrew and he says, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And that was so compelling, so different and unique. They dropped everything. They dropped their nets and followed him. To James and Andrew brothers, they were, they were fishing in the, in the sea as well. They were with their father in hired service and he says, come follow me. And they left their own father in the boat to follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had a unique authority. He had a calling, a truth, a power, and a weight that people had never seen or heard before. Guys, what's the difference between a chef and a food critic? They're, they all work in the industry. What's the difference between a director and a movie reviewer? It is simple. One creates, another consumes. One creates, another consumes. One is a designer, the other is a discusser. Jesus is authoritative, not because he is just so intelligent. He's, he's, he's authoritative not because he has more degrees and, and doctorates in the Old Testament law, in the original languages. He's authoritative because he is an original designer. Jesus is the very word of God become flesh. He wasn't just a man talking about how to know God. He wasn't just a man giving us advice on how to live a righteous and a holy and a healthy life. Jesus was God incarnate. He was revealing the grace and truth of God to us. This is why he taught with greater authority than any scribe or Pharisee. There was a qualitative difference to the message of Jesus. This shows us that Jesus has authority over religion. Jesus has a religious authority. He has a religious authority that is greater than even our greatest teachers. And just as he's finishing his, his message and his, his lecture and his sermon, 
Jesus then meets a man with an unclean spirit. He is literally demon-possessed in the synagogue. And it's kind of ironic that in this place that's supposed to be holy and set apart for God, that there are all these like demon-possessed guys hanging out. But that's actually a common theme in the Gospels, just to kind of poke at the Jews and how they truly don't understand the power and presence of God. You've got all these possessed people running around. And in this second passage, second point is the true spiritual authority of Jesus. In verses 23 and 28 to 28, we have Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of Mark. Okay? In the Gospel, this is his first miracle, and it is an exorcism. I want to confess something to you as a pastor. I have never done an exorcism, and I was t- I'm terrified to do it. Right? Uh, if you've ever seen The Exorcist, what happens to the priest at the end is not good. And so I'm like, Lord, I want to pray for people but I don't want to have to do an exorcism. But this is Jesus' first miracle. Talk about like, like a doozy, right? You gotta either show up, you gotta, you gotta prove something. Let's see what Jesus is really made of as the son of God, claiming to have the authority of God. Right after he finishes teaching, a demon-possessed man cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus then rebukes the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. There's shrieking, there's convulsing, there's yelling, and then the demon comes out of him, and then everyone is more amazed. You see, after he finished his sermon, the people were amazed and astonished, and after he just performs an exorcism right before their eyes, they are astonished, and they cry out, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. Do you remember the question that the demons asked? Have you come to destroy us? You know, for the longest time, whenever I read that, my heart would answer, no. Why? Because Jesus is love, right? Well, I mean, that's what we think. We're like, Jesus is loving, and he don't want to destroy anything. He's a savior. He's a redeemer. He's a good shepherd. Our Jesus doesn't destroy. That's what I always thought. The answer is actually yes. Jesus came to destroy them. 1 John 3, 8. This is what John the apostle writes. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, Jesus is a savior. He is a protector. He is a redeemer, but he's also a destroyer. And he came to destroy the works of the devil. Last week, I talked about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom had arrived because the king had come. Brothers and sisters, every exorcism that Jesus performs in the gospel. It is not simply a spiritual miracle. It is an example of spiritual warfare and the kingdom of God driving back and defeating the kingdom of Satan. Do you see that? That is what Jesus has come to do, to destroy the works of the devil. Two brief things on this passage regarding Jesus' spiritual authority. Why did Jesus rebuke the demon to be silent? It sounded like the demon was saying the right things. You are the holy one of Israel. Okay? And generally, we would think, keep saying that. More people need to identify Jesus, not just as a healer, not just as a carpenter or a teacher. We want people to know Jesus is the holy one of Israel. Why did Jesus tell him to be silent? One theory is this, that it was all part of a battle that was going on between Jesus and the demon. The demon was trying to gain power over Jesus by identifying him and declaring his name. That's what some theologians say, and it's very creative, kind of compelling. It could be true, 
But I believe the greater reason why Jesus told them to be silent was to keep his identity veiled and his ultimate purpose uh, until his ultimate purpose was accomplished on the cross. If you read throughout the Gospels and you read through Mark, you'll see over and over again, people have the wrong idea about Jesus. They're wrong. The disciples are wrong about Jesus. The Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're all wrong about Jesus. But something amazing happens. When Jesus is dying on the cross, there's a Roman centurion. And he sees Jesus. And he says, surely this man is the son of God. And that's this like epic I mean, imagine a movie, right? That's like a realization quote, like the, 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 the clouds are dark, a light breaks through, and this Roman centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. You see, Jesus knew that until he died and until he went to the cross, people wouldn't understand. They wouldn't understand who he truly was. They wouldn't understand what he had truly come to do. So in Mark's gospel, it's ironic that the demons actually identify him correctly. From the beginning of Jesus's ministry, miracle number one, chapter one, the demons are like, you are the holy one of Israel. We are in trouble, right? Jesus has them be quiet. Another practical reason, he doesn't want the demons to be his like evangelists, right? Just doesn't seem to line up. It's better for the disciples to proclaim the good news, not the demons to proclaim the person and work of Jesus. And so he would not have that be. So he tells them to be silent. Second observation about this passage, it is important for us to note the true spiritual authority of Christ. How long does the contest last between the demons and Jesus? How long does it last? Does Jesus have to make a second command? Does, does he have to shout and yell a third and a fourth time for the demons to leave him? No, the demons are completely unable to put a fight up against Jesus. They cannot resist the command of Jesus. Our Lord doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't go through a special ritual. He doesn't go through a mystical incantation. He doesn't even dance like a shaman, right? He doesn't like incense like a Buddhist. Jesus simply says the word. His word is final and his authority is absolute. And this is such an important word for those of us who are in fear of the devil. If you're the type of person who's afraid of the devil and his work in your life, of demons tempting you and oppressing you and troubling you, there, are, there aren't many because we're kind of like scientific, postmodern, so we aren't that mindful of angels and demons. But I believe that there's some of you here today are. You've experienced oppression and you're afraid. You felt the darkness. Maybe it's just kawi, scissor lock at night, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'll never sleep again. And there's fear. I've had those moments, brothers and sisters. The message for us is to remember not just the fact and the fear that Satan is more powerful than we are. Not just the fear of what a demon could do to you or your family or to your circumstance, but to remember that Satan and even his mightiest demons, they are powerless against the authority of Christ. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in this world. Christ not only has authority over the word of God in the spiritual realm. He also has authority over the physical world. He also has authority over the physical world. And so we've looked at his authority over religion, his authority over spiritual matters, all the demons, all the devils that hell might throw at us. Jesus is greater and he doesn't need to fight them in a way that reflects like Lord of the Rings. No, he simply 
by the power and authority of his word banishes them. That's how mighty our savior is. That's how strong our Lord is. Thirdly, let's look at his true physical authority. Let's go to our passage again, verses 29 to 34. 29 to 34. Mark writes, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon, and Simon is Peter, okay, Peter, and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not, again, let the, permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Friends, this is perhaps the quickest healing story in all of Scripture. Verse 29, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and the disciples and Jesus, they go to his house. Verse 30, they find out his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and she has a fever. They tell Jesus. Verse 31, Jesus heals, right? Takes her by the hand, she gets up, she is healed. Super quick. I want to make two observations here, though. First is this. In this picture, we have a fuller picture of discipleship. I referred back to the calling of Peter and Andrew. And when we think of that calling, when Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, and they leave their nets, they drop their nets, they leave their comforts, their professions, their homes, their friends, their family, and they follow Jesus, most of us imagine they literally left everything and just never turned back. That They just started this wandering for three years throughout Galilee and uh, Capernaum and into Jerusalem. We imagine that, right? They just left everyone behind and never turned back. But here we see their home is still in Capernaum. That Peter and Andrew, they're still living with their family. But there's a big difference. When they went back home, they brought Jesus. You see, there's a fuller picture of discipleship here. And in, in fact, of their, it's the fact of their relationship to Jesus that their mother-in-law was able to be healed. The point is this. Discipleship doesn't mean abandoning and neglecting your family. Okay? It doesn't. We think that. We think that. I was like, oh, my, but James and John, they left their father in the boat. That sounds like abandonment. Jesus is making a bigger point about his calling. Discipleship means that we must learn to love and to serve and lead and relate to our family the most precious treasures in our life, our work, our relationships, our community in a completely new way. That Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, that we experience his reordering of our priorities, reordering of our lives. And that means everything is now under the lordship of Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, we think that if we get radical about Christ, we think we're, we're afraid we're gonna lose things. That you're gonna lose your family. That you're gonna lose your friends you're going to lose your comfort, that you're going to lose your children if you get too radical about Jesus. So we want to keep everything kind of in between, right? The reality is this. Jesus is not here to take things away from you and make you miserable. Jesus came to give you life, life to the fullest. He came to give us abundant life, life in his kingdom, so that we would stop wasting our lives, on ourselves and in this world, and we would start living our lives 
under the sweet, life-giving authority of Jesus Christ. Different picture of discipleship. I thought it was so cool. They were still living at home. And they took Jesus back to their, mo- their mother-in-law. They took Jesus back to heal and to support and to renew their family. Second observation from this passage, Jesus cares about the physical world, okay? He cares about the physical world. He cares about our physical needs. We need to get this into our cynical hearts, okay? There is a religious cynicism that Christians can experience where we think that we either A, the clo- or this is what we think, sorry. This is the, the dysfunction. We think the closer we get to God, the more detached and indifferent we become to the physical world in our earthly lives. We just think that. And so suddenly everything becomes about like spiritual matters. This abstract idea of what the kingdom is, that all that matters is heaven and spiritual salvation. And when we think like this, suddenly, when you look at your earthly life, you look at your studies as a college student, you look at your earthly relationships, your work, even your house and possessions, you can grow indifferent. Everything on the earth seems meaningless to us when you think that the only thing that matters to God is spiritual things. Does this make sense? Is this you? I went through this. When I was younger in high school, I went through a just genuine uh, season of spiritual revival. And I wanted to live for Jesus. And so I, li- I read Ecclesiastes. And famously, Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. And I read that and I said, that is right. So I told my mom, I'm quitting school and following Jesus. And she wanted to slap me. Why? Because I thought following Jesus meant going for this abstract, spiritual, vague, nebulous kingdom, when in reality, Jesus did ministry in this world. He met people's physical needs. He cared about justice. He cared about people who were blind, lame, and sick, and diseased. He cared about people who are hurting. He cared about orphans and widows. There's a story called Chronicles of Narnia. You probably haven't read the book, but maybe you've seen the movie. And the main character is a, a, a lion named Aslan. And Aslan is a metaphorical figure for Jesus. Now, in Narnia, Narnia is being ruled in the beginning by this evil witch. And so Narnia is a place where it's always winter, but never Christmas. Right? That's the worst. Imagine that. Always winter, never Christmas. And there's snow everywhere. There's no life. It's desolate and frozen. But then Aslan comes. And everywhere where Aslan goes, something amazing happens. The snow melts. The sun breaks through grass, flowers, and life comes up. And in the same way, Aslan is reflecting Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the king, and wherever he goes, he brings the kingdom. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, so wherever he goes, he brings that light. What is the kingdom of God? It's not just some spiritual, distant, ambiguous place. You know what the kingdom of God is for us today in this world? It is the reign of Christ. It is the presence of God. It is the, the authority of Jesus working in our lives, in the church, in the midst of his people. And so in the same way, wherever Jesus went, he brought life. 
Wherever Jesus went, he brought healing and light. Brothers and sisters, you and I, if we are citizens of the kingdom of God, we are called to do the same. We are called to be salt and light. And so wherever we go, we are called to establish not our reign, not our dominion, not our power and influence, but rather Jesus's. So we bring his hope, we bring his generosity, we bring his love, we bring, we bring his care. And so the moment we read this passage, we need to see Jesus cares about renewing all things, spiritual and physical. And that is so, so important because there's so many of you here today, you don't care about your work. You don't care about your school. You don't care about your neighbors. You don't care about health, but you tell yourself you care about the gospel and you care about the kingdom. The reality is Jesus wants you to care about all these physical things and live them according to Jesus' reign, his word, and his truth. That is a reshaping of your purpose. Do you hear that? Do you see that? Last point, true authority on mission. I'll go through this as quickly as I can. In verse 35, this is what Mark writes. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Consider this. Consider the amazing fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Jesus Christ knew that he needed to pray. So after this long, exhausting day of teaching and of doing healings and exorcisms all through the night, because if you read Mark's story, after Peter's mother-in-law was healed, the whole town came. And then just word spread. And everyone who had a disease, everyone who had an ailment, everyone who was troubled, they all just came to Jesus because they had never seen or heard or witnessed anything like him before. And Jesus knew early in the morning, while it was still dark, he needed to pray and spend time with his God. How terrifying is it that you and I, <laughs> we have far less pedigree and strength than Jesus. How terrifying is it that we think we don't have to pray? We're so nonchalant about a dead and absent and silent prayer life when Jesus Christ knew he needed to pray. So while he was there early in the morning praying, Simon and the others, they were searching for him. And the word search is actually too weak a translation here. Though in the Greek, it literally means to hunt and to pursue. They all went into a search party to hunt Jesus down. Now, why? Why were they so frantic searching for Jesus? Because everybody wants a piece of Jesus. They were all looking for Jesus. And they wanted to, the, to keep the crowds satisfied. Now, imagine this. Imagine you signed on to follow Jesus and he says, I will make you fishers of men. And you imagine Jesus as the Messiah and he's gonna come and establish the kingdom of God and you think that this is gonna be an earthly kingdom, that this is gonna be earthly glory, that right now, if we follow Jesus, we will level up our lives beyond comprehension. They must be thinking this is the moment. This is the beginning. 
Jesus' fame is spreading everywhere. We got to keep this revival going. Man, if I was there, I would have been so excited. Right? Imagine if you're Peter. You're like, Jesus is for real. He is healing people simply by his word. We're seeing demons. We've never seen anything like this. Of course, you want to keep this going. Your fame is spreading. But Jesus, you know what he says? He says, no. The people want me. They want the healing. They want the miracles. But no, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Here we see Jesus, not as one who abuses his authority for himself, but he, he uses his authority because he knows he has a mission. And his mission is not just to be the greatest healer who ever walked the earth. He's not here to be the greatest exorcist who ever ministered in Palestine or even become the famous, uh, most famous teacher to ever teach in the Jewish faith. No, Jesus had a mission and it's to preach the good news of the gospel, to call all people to repent and believe for the kingdom of God had come. You see, Jesus knew the greatest need that we have is the gospel. He knew that his ministry and his mission wasn't just to get famous and popular. He knew God sent him to go to the cross. He was born to die, to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, if we understand that that was Jesus's ministry, that was his mission, and that was his focus, what is yours? What is yours? What is your purpose? What is your mission? If you are a kingdom person, if you are a person who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, your mission is similar to Jesus, to go and preach the good news, to go and be salt and light, to go and reflect the good renewing reign of God, the kingdom of God, wherever you are. What does that look like in your life? What might that look like if Jesus reigned over your family? If he reigned over your studies, if he reigned over your relationship, the person you're, you're dating right now or the, your, your roommates or your uh, workplace, what does it mean? What would it look like for you to try and practice and put into practice the authority of Jesus. How sweet would that be? Our mission and our purpose is not to establish our own kingdoms. It's to proclaim his. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus Christ was so focused and set on the cross that he didn't allow anything to deter him. No pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no, no threat would deter him from the cross. And no pleasure and no success, no fame and comfort could deter him from the cross. We thank you that your son was obedient, obedient to the point of death. We thank you that in Jesus, we can be citizens of your great kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to live according to your kingdom, to delight in the fact that you are present with us, that you are willing and able to reign over us and reorder our lives. Father, that's what we long for. That's what we are praying for. Teach us how to live. Teach us how to love our families. Teach us how to love ourselves. Teach us how to love our enemies and our neighbors. For, Lord, we've tried to do it on our own and we have fallen short. 
God, I pray for your authority right now to be weighty upon us. Jesus, would you lead us? Would you show us how sweet it is when you are our king?